Welcome. This is the Business of Vulnerability, the podcast that shares the wonderful work that individuals, organizations, and communities are doing around the world to try and help those who are most vulnerable. Welcome to the Business of Vulnerability. Today on the podcast, we have Gerard and Jim from Headstrong. Uh, one of you, Gerard or Jim, you want to give us an explanation of what Headstrong is for our listeners? Yeah, I'll, I'll start in. Gerard and I can fill in blanks along the way. So, uh, hey, everyone. Um, listen, what is what is Headstrong? It began as the Headstrong Project, uh, short version of the name Headstrong. It's actually quite simple. Um, it actually is a mental health treatment practice specifically oriented on the care for post 9-11 veterans and by extension along the way, picking up a few family members and active duty service members. Uh, and really, we exist uh, in really three dimensions. You know, we are barrier free in terms of stigma free, bureaucracy free and cost free. And I think that's some of the secret ingredients as to what uh, Headstrong is. It is a group practice um, around the country now. Uh, 28 program markets across 11 states and the District of Columbia with some of the world's best trauma-informed clinicians um, addressing the mental health treatment needs of our nation's veterans. And I'll kick it to Gerard. Oh, sure. Now, I'll, I'll uh, tell a little bit about how this came about. Um, and uh, what happened was I was working with my colleague, Dr. Ann Beter, and I'm Gerard Allaire. We're both work in the Department of Medicine at Weill Cornell medical college. And back in 2012, we were sort of minding our own business, doing our public health stuff that we were doing. And uh, a family friend of Ann Beter's, Zach Iskall, uh, who is the, the real you know, main founder. Uh, Zach was a, uh, somebody who's a unique sort of unicorn. He uh, is a New York City uh, uh, sort of well-off guy who went to Cornell and is philanthropically connected. And uh, decided to that he had a very strong passion to serve his country and went off and joined the Marines um, and fought in a number of uh, battles, including the Battle of Fallujah. He was a Marine captain. And uh, in that battle, 200 men were wounded and uh, 34 men were killed. And uh, when he finished serving and came back, and throughout his time, he would be calling back and forth to Dr. Beter to ask her advice about various men that he was uh, leading uh, with different mental health challenges and other challenges, substance use that they had, and she was giving him some support. When he came back, he uh, sort of struggled because as he kept in touch with his colleagues, uh, his men, and his and leadership uh, uh, from the Marines, he was hearing of increasing numbers of suicides. And what he realized when speaking to one of his commanders uh, over a beer was that soon there would be more deaths to suicide among his company than had died in that bloody battle. So he uh, felt very uh, impassioned and urgent and came to uh, his friend, uh, Ann Beter and myself, and basically uh, totally reoriented our, uh, everything we were doing to say, this is the most important public health crisis that has to be addressed. And you're public health experts and you've got to get on this. And we were not so, smart about, frankly, uh, the military, as you know, uh, and Jim can speak to this more eloquently, but, you know, the military these days makes up a very small percentage of our population. So we were civilians working in a hospital, and uh, we didn't really understand fully what uh, these young folks were going through. 
But uh, we did a deep dive quickly by speaking to a lot of military uh, mental health professionals by uh, doing, and then we went back and did postgraduate work, really dove deep into trauma, learned a bunch of specific techniques to treat trauma. And uh, we said, okay, and the deal was, Zach said, I will go and raise the money. I have friends in finance. I have friends in the philanthropy world. Uh, I'll bring the money and the vets. You devise the program that is going to stop people from killing themselves and getting them back to their life if possible. And, uh, you know, what we learned after starting this at Cornell, just with our cadre of therapists, was that there are very specific uh, treatments that work extremely well. Um, but we have to do a few things first. We have to get past the stigma of mental health and mental health treatment, because uh, as you can imagine, warriors uh, like the warriors we were treating have a rub dirt uh, and uh, keep marching attitude, which is sort of uh, you know indoctrinated into them. And uh, they also have a big thing about, oh, somebody lost a leg, they're more uh, in need than me, and all kinds of other reasons why uh, they may not want to embrace uh, mental health treatment or psychotherapy. But we uh, were able to figure out how to get past that, mostly through treating sort of popular opinion leaders within the military uh, veteran community, and then having them get better and having them tell their friends, which is still the number one way we get uh, veterans. It's veteran to veteran. Um, and so as the veterans started coming in, as we started uh, using all these different modalities, people were getting better. And we measured this from the beginning uh, using a couple of measures, but what we were able to see is that, uh, first of all, suicidality sharply decreased, the thought about wanting to kill oneself, uh, as well as mood increased, people were sleeping through the night, people were not having intrusive thoughts, they were no longer having daytime re-experiencing or flashbacks, um, they were no longer fighting with their wives, they were able to get on with uh, you know everything. And uh, that simple uh, way of doing things, which is tailoring the treatment to the veteran pairing them with the right therapist, having a psychiatric evaluation done first, then uh, seeing a therapist for the amount of time they need to be seen, uh, which is determined by the therapist and the, and the client, uh, because everybody comes to the table with a different situation, uh, and then following them through treatment and graduating them or having them just go back to their life, leaving the door open for a future crisis. So that's sort of like the origin story, if you will, with a little bit of uh, the specific of uh, how it works. And I'll let uh, Jim do some more talking because I think I've spent a lot <laughs> right now. Yeah, no, I think you're picking up on a couple of themes that I want to make sure listeners um, kind of follow. Um, one is the model itself uh, and the thinking that went into the model. You know, how do you attack stigma first and how do you break that down to allow people in? The word you used, uh, and, you know, kicking off the podcast to become vulnerable. Uh, and allow themselves to kind of drop into treatment. Uh, it, just the name of the organization, Headstrong and Vulnerability. And when you, when you look at these two topics next to one another, you realize that step one, as Gerard kind of points out, is letting people feel okay uh, being vulnerable about talking the traumatic experiences that are often uh, the result of, of war. Um, you know, I did 26 years, two tours, um, I have Marine Corps friends who are friends of Zach and served with him. I've known Zach since 2012 and Gerard followed the progress of this wonderful organization um, that today is treating about a thousand uh, clients monthly uh, across these program markets. And I think you pick up on the unique design of the Headstrong model, uh, barrier-free, uh, cost-free, stigma-free, 
these are the things that allow people to become vulnerable and is the start of their their journey into health, better health and well-being. And so a couple of other interesting things about Headstrong, you know, the interesting thing that I've always been attracted to mostly about Headstrong is um, we don't spend money on buildings and infrastructure. What's interesting about the model behind Headstrong to me is, as the executive director is, you know, I have to put fuel in Gerard's tank. Uh, that tank is clinical sessions straight up uh, to allow his assembled clinicians that he, he and Dr. Beter work so hard to vet and find across this country um, to just free them up to do their jobs. Uh, and, and so Gerard always harps on me on the clinical experience and how I have to just keep that foremost in mind about anything we want to do uh, to and rightfully so harps at me because it, we need to free up these clinicians to do it. They're they're doing best, and so I feel very proud. You know, I've been here three months, but I've known the organization for a number of years. The model itself, um, allowing people to become vulnerable. I can tell you stories from Fort Drum, and this is in the early days of um, Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, leaders, in particular, struggle because they are more inclined to not seek care. And what Gerard said about finding leaders first to set an example for their subordinates to um, empower their vulnerability after they themselves became vulnerable enough to kind of walk in the door. Uh, yeah, there was a famous saying at Fort Drum where leaders walked in the back door of mental health treatment providers while their soldiers walked in through the front door. Um, this embarrassment um, associated with seeking care uh, and everything that it, uh, personifies in the military officer, you can, you can see the juxtaposition of just incredible courage, in, incredible fortitude, incredible leadership, and then the weakness that comes from some of the wounds of these wars. And, how, and I've always been struck by how leaders uh, and the leaders I served with really struggle with that. And so I think to their credit, um, in the early days of Headstrong, making leaders feel vulnerable first and setting the example for their soldiers, sailors, Marines, airmen, airwomen uh, was brilliant because it set a tone um, around it's okay to be vulnerable. And it is, we've learned this the hard way. And you know, in order to become better, you first have to become vulnerable and allow yourself to drop into this. And I, I'm most proud of uh, the work that Gerard and his team do every day. I, I think I play uh, a supportive role to what is the main effort Clinical operations are the main effort. Uh, my job is simply to kind of assemble the resources and put the people in play that can do that uh, and really empower the clinicians that uh, Gerard and Dr. Beter care so deeply about. So it, it's an honor, but it is a very interesting organization. And when you think about the government's approach and the VA's approach, and you know, Gerard riffed on a couple of key characteristics. And the care, duration of care is determined by the client and the clinician. Um, it's very different than insurance schemes that have, you know, eight authorized visits. Okay, we might be able to do more. Uh, you know, you, you just see the absolute necessity for an organization like Headstrong uh, to kind of be in the game. And, and it is in the game sizably today. So, you know, picking up on what Jim just said, or I'm sorry, you were going to ask a question. No, 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 I, uh, please go for it. Uh, sure. I was just going to say that. One of the ways that we do um, empower uh, vulnerability, if you will, is to, uh, in a few ways. One, we have a very active social media campaign that's on Twitter, Facebook, uh, 
you know, Instagram, you know, at Get Headstrong, uh, Get Headstrong, et cetera. And those, uh, what we do best is tell stories. And what's interesting is when we first started doing uh, this care with this population, now you can understand, maybe your listeners can understand that um, people have a lot to lose in a way in this country, uh, even at this time, by being open about being in mental health care, especially people who carry weapons, people who have security clearances, people who um, just, uh, you know, it's a big deal uh, for, I don't know, Michael Phelps to come out and say he got mental health care and he's just an Olympic swimmer. He's not somebody, you know. So the point is what we do is we tell these stories through the Facing Stigma series. And uh, at first, we, we, everybody would say, look, nobody's going to know that I'm in mental health care, right? No one will know. You promised me if this is confidential, et cetera. I don't want anyone. And yes, of course, they go through treatment and then much to our surprise, come out the other end saying, I've got to tell everybody about this. How can I give back? Who can I tell? Can you put me in front of funders? Can you put me in front of other veterans? And so the series was born. And this is how we flip the script on uh, stigma associated with mental health. And we talk about, uh, you know, basically mental fitness. And we talk about how you need to be the best version of yourself. And you need to be the best husband and the best uh, father for your children and the best employee. And the only way to do that is by working on yourself uh, working on your nervous system, which is part of your body, the same way you would work on your physical body if you were going to the gym or watching your diet or getting sleep or any other things that you'd be doing, which appeals to many of these men and women because they fully understand the importance of keeping their instrument uh, in tune and being able to be tip of the spear and firing on all cylinders. So we uh, we use that language. And then, you know, the other thing I'll say is we um, uh, we don't... this. Uh, Headstrong is not for wimps, um, meaning this is not a place where people walk in and uh, the therapist says, oh, how was your week? Um, uh, what's going on? No, uh, that's not the way to do trauma treatment. Trauma treatment is much more um, regimented and it, and it is biologically informed because what we're trying to do is two things simultaneously. We're trying to reduce the level of... Um, uh, overactivation in the nervous system, which, which comes from repeated stress on the nervous system. Uh, and that oftentimes, you know, a point that's missed is that more than half of the folks that we treat uh, had childhoods that were uh, a worse war than the war they, uh, they fought overseas. So as a result, they, uh, you know, the later traumas hang on the architecture of the earlier trauma. So, um, so we have to reduce the level of distress uh, in their body, number one. And we have to specifically go back to target traumas. And uh, we make that list together with the uh, client. And the client understands, uh, we're going to have to revisit uh, these traumas, not relive them. Big distinction. We're not going back and running them over it in a way where they run from therapy and where, they're, where we're basically torturing them. But we have to revisit them in their present day body, with their present day resources, using uh, techniques like EMDR, which is a psychotherapy technique, using other um, things so that we can uh, correct the mismanaged memories um, that are associated with these traumatic memories. And essentially, as one uh, client said to me, basically what you did with EMDR and with our therapy was, my mind was uh, like a desk with uh, file folders all over it, paper strewn everywhere. And what you helped me do is put all those papers neatly back into the files, 
file them into my um, into my brain and put them into long-term memory where I can access them if I need them, but they are not uh, constantly in my sight and constantly disturbing and distracting me and uh, causing me distress. So um, it, it is not for wimps. It is uh, very hard work. And and we let them know right up front. And frankly, this population, uh, this appeals to them. For the most part, they're like, sir, I'll do whatever you tell me to not uh, keep screaming in the middle of the night, <laughs> freaking my wife out. I will stand on my head in the corner for five months if you tell me to. And we're like, we don't have to go that far, but we are going to need to do this stuff. And you're going to be wiped out after session. And you're going to have to you know, keep at this. And we're not letting up. And uh, we're not talking about what you watched at the movies the other day. Like I don't care so much about the net. I mean, if there's a crisis going on, of course we address it, but we really have to do the hard work of the trauma treatment. And uh, it's uh, kind of what they're used to. We talk about it in the terms of mission. We talk about it in terms of this is going to be hard. You know, you're going to be, um, this is going to be really difficult, but you know, this is the only way we can achieve the goal. And if you do that and combine it with a complete education about their nervous system and how this fixes their nervous system, they're on board. They're like, they just want to know what's under the hood doc. What do I have to do? Where do I put the screwdriver to turn it, to lower my idle and to, you know, potentially, you know, have this engine run the way it ran beforehand. And we do that with them and they get better. Wow. That's amazing. I, I was curious uh, if, if you can think back, how did you convince your first leaders to, to do this? Right. There's the, uh, the stigma and everything like how, that had to be a challenge. How did, how did that come about? We didn't set out to do it. We were asked by other uh, veteran organizations. Can, uh, they were having the same problem within their organizations. So whether it was Team Rubicon or IAVA or Mission Continues, they said to us, can you come? We're planning some things to do within our organizations around mental health. People are you know, doing the thing of our organization, but they've got that 30,000 foot stare. They're clearly disturbed. Uh, they're, you know, they're worrying everyone. Uh, can, and we want to do something internally to take care of our veterans. Can you come and be part of this? And we were invited to sort of roundtables, day-long exercises, that kind of thing. And we did uh, a longer version of what I'm doing with you right now. And uh, what happened was uh, everyone thanked us. And then they stopped me at the elevator and said, can I speak to you in your office for a second? Uh, and then the people that were running those organizations said, uh, can I be your first client, third client? I mean, they didn't know how many clients we had at that point, but they were our first clients. And, uh, and I said, yeah, absolutely. Of course, you're a cool guy. Come on in, let's do it. And, uh, and, and, that, and that's the way it happened. So it's a question of a program of attraction rather than compulsion. Hmm. That's uh, uh, amazing. I, I think that there is that stigma and and being able to go out and kind of advertise feels like that would be a tremendous barrier. And so the fact that you were able to get people to come to you and sounds like continually come to you through the veteran referral has been, uh, I mean, that, that's amazing. It's awesome. Straight up advertising has never worked for us. We happily, we've not spent very much money on that, but our brief forays into it when we've had, uh, some like dedicated cash from an organization to say, let's do some, you know, this type of advertising marketing. The only thing that works for us is telling our story. And in whatever uh, place that is, uh, pre-COVID, it was at gallows, it was at large gatherings, it was at fundraisers, and we'd have a surge in uh, new, case, uh, new uh, people signing up after the gala because some friend was there or they were attending you know, as a guest or whatever. Uh, or it's been through social media. Uh, but I mean, more and more, I, I see every, uh, every single lead, every single uh, submit button that's pushed on our website 
I see. And the, one of the questions on the intake is, how did you find out about us? And it is typically friend is a headstrong client. Uh, you know, uh, spouse uh, knows somebody at work who's in headstrong. Uh, that's very, very common. Or other organizations, oftentimes the VA or other veteran service organizations know about our work because they have other clients that they've seen. So it is, uh, again, through this uh, uh, organic attraction. It's about relationships. I mean, I think the relationships are what we're talking about. And uh, yeah, I, I can tell you, um, you know, the Facing Stigma series, uh, I pay close attention to it. It's beautifully crafted uh, to tell stories and stories resonate. And I'll tell you in particular who they resonate with. Uh, and and I, I think your listeners uh, should really dial into this a little bit. Uh, our women followers, and think of it as caregivers, spouses, friends, neighbors, they are the origins of, of a lot of the following of, of what Headstrong is all about. And, and uh, Gerard mentioned it, spouses, significant others, you know, they're the ones all too often who are taking the first step to get someone else help. Uh, and this, these relationships are key because, uh, you know, this point of pride that we've touched upon uh, amongst military members it is one of the most difficult things to overcome is that the pride we feel and our strength and our resilience on our own uh, is so in the way. And I can tell you firsthand just how, how stubborn I, I was in similar fashion uh, to opening up about some of this stuff, you know, it, it, this, because it's instilled in you. You spend 20, 30, 10, five years, you know, pride in service is one of the most fundamental tenets of your time in service. Um, this is an organization you're proud to be part of. Strength matters. Uh, Gerard's term, not for the wimps, neither is military service. You know, it's, it is a hard life and you are honed to be tough when you need to be tough. But underneath that very, 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 very thick skin uh, is a fine sheen or veneer of compassion and empathy for the people around us that drives us to take care of them like no other cohort of people I've ever observed in my life. The caring gene, um, we have it. People may not know that uh, because it is a rather rough and tumble image of a military person, a member. Uh, truth be told, there's a great deal of compassion and empathy that goes into serving in the military because of what it means to be alongside uh, your colleagues in, in, in this nature. So I, I think Gerard describes as, you, you know, you're able to pull on that because this pride broken down, the care that's within all of us. I'm so proud of Gerard's team and their ability to get at that, to be, you know, the steps that are necessary to kind of re-experience so you get on a pathway to being well. It is the coolest, uh, coolest set of responsibilities I've ever had to witness in terms of how you um, can improve upon a person's life uh, through treatment. And, and that is the headstrong story. Wow, that's amazing. I, uh, I'm curious, Gerard mentioned a little bit of, of how your, um, uh, not really advertising, but, but kind of advertising has changed with COVID. How has yeah. the rest of what Headstrong's doing changed with COVID? A great deal. And Gerard and I will riff on this together. So, uh, uh, and I'll let Gerard get into the clinical aspects of how uh, we deliver treatment today. Uh, we'll refer to it as a pivot. Uh, you know, I think through our strong relationship with Wild Cornell Medicine, first of all, you have to understand we're so grounded in efficacy uh, in treatment approaches. And that comes through the relationship with Wild Cornell, 
that is, again, one of the singular strengths of the headstrong model is to be grounded in science uh, and evidence-based approaches. So by being affiliated with an outfit like Wild Cornell Medicine, um, it was kind of easy to shift to telemental health. Uh, the platform was there, uh, the means were there, uh, protecting all the things that we need to protect. So uh, first and foremost, it was a clinical pivot uh, to treat people um, over telehealth. Before I joined this podcast, I had a neurology follow-up uh, that was with a neurologist over telehealth this morning. Uh, and so uh, the efficacy of the treatment approach, I'll let Gerard talk about it because it's pretty cool and some of the things that he's able to do. My side of the organization, you know, how you pivot away from galas as your singular means of generating revenue, uh, quite the wake-up call. You know, you're no longer packing 500 people uh, into uh, a beautiful hall in Manhattan, San Francisco, Washington, D.C. Uh, so it had an impact on our organization. Uh, and, and, and as I joined the organization three months ago, it was at the beginning stages of coming away from that reliance upon events um, as the singular means by which we raise money to really accelerating the way we raise money today uh, through philanthropic partners, corporate sponsorship, corporate giving, uh, individual donors. And that's what I want your listeners to remember is this is a 100% soft money organization. We are only able to do what we do because we raise the money to do it. Uh, and so therefore it's somewhat finite. And Gerard and Dr. Beatty remind me constantly of the finite nature of resources and staying not too far over ahead over your skis uh, to be able to deliver on the expectations you set for people. You know. You, this could be a lifetime of treatment for some people. It could go on for years, and that's the beauty of the model. But how do you generate revenue? That's my business in a in a COVID nineteen environment, uh, and it's become tough. But I will tell you, we've we've had some very good success uh, in appealing to uh, the pivot we made uh, based on the strong outcomes we're capable of delivering, and really the understanding in this country that in a COVID nineteen era. Mental health is a big driver of need. Uh, and so society um, at its finest recognizes the stressors of social isolation, of uh, not working alongside the people you worked with, the stress within families that come from uh, children under feet uh, and spouses under feet now working from home. Uh, and, and so I, I think what we've been able to, we've been able to articulate the value of Headstrong in that environment successfully. And you know, our pivot is, is twofold, clinically and, and revenue. Uh, and I, I just briefly riffed on revenue, but I wanna turn it over to Gerard because the more compelling story is how we've delivered uninterrupted care. Uh, and I'll let Gerard pick up on that. Sure, I mean, the, um, the good thing about all this is that we uh, utilize best in class therapists that work out of their own practices that they manage and uh, have been uh, doing for most of them 10 years plus. So unlike a place that maybe like the VA, for example, that was bound to both the, uh, the place itself without the ability to do telehealth um, in, in the behavioral health uh, parts of the VA, 
we uh, had 250 therapists uh, that we were working with and collaborating with that already had been have used uh, telehealth at some point or another. When somebody goes on vacation, when somebody relocates, you know, our, our state licenses as therapists allow us to operate uh, within the state. And uh, COVID, actually, one of the first things that happened was they relaxed a lot of the rules about uh, licensure. So we were able to treat people across state lines as well. So uh, what happened? Frankly, I mean, just my own story, when I uh, was working with people in Manhattan primarily, uh, they had friends in Albany and other places upstate that needed help. And uh, for example, we'd have support groups where uh, we'd meet in a conference room, there was a, you know, a camera, a laptop, and a screen on the wall. And we had these hybrid support groups for the longest time where people in Albany or other spots in New York State and the people in New York City became very close and shared in a way, for years I've been doing this in a way that uh, seemed seamless. So uh, I knew it worked, uh, what, what, and, but that was a support group and that was just sort of like making sure people were okay. What is the most astounding thing is that this heavy lift, uh, hard work, not for wimps thing I was talking about before, the trauma treatment, uh, which is very, very intense. And people thought, and this includes most people in the trauma community, that um, you really could only do that in uh, the office because you have to watch the person's respiration, their eyes are closed, you have to watch their cheeks flushing, you have to look for uh, movement in their body. There's a lot of things that go into noticing how distressed somebody is and being able to pull them out of the potential for dissociating, or you know, God forbid, flashing back or something that's not what you want in your office. Um, how could we do that through telehealth? Well, uh, obviously, uh, carefully, but uh, we have been able to do that. And for people that were working on their trauma material, we just continued to work on the trauma material through the, um, you know, through the video. And uh, there are ways of doing that, whereas we might in the office use some sort of tactile thing where they're holding on to buzzers. And I didn't really get into any of that, but it's like a thing that you're grounded to uh, while you're doing the therapy. Uh, we just pivoted to them being able to tap on themselves with their own hands and doing that through video and doing it with them. And you get the same sort of bilateral stimulation that you need to process some of this traumatic material. And these things have been available and were sort of considered like not as good. Turns out better in many cases because the, the veteran who, um, and this particularly for a very activated veteran, the veteran who uh, the trip across town and up the elevator to see me in and of itself is an incredibly dysregulating experience. Uh, you'd spend the first 15 minutes just waiting for their clothes to dry off because they're sweating so badly, not from the heat, but from the anxiety of getting through, hearing helicopters overhead, uh, seeing a police car go by, having to ride the subway, being hyper alert to somebody who's acting suspiciously um, uh, different when they're in the safety of their own home with their dog next to them or their wife in the next room or whatever. And they've just, uh, whatever, they, they're relaxed and comfortable in their safe place. And then we're doing the work. Well, now we've eliminated all of that trauma, if you will, or, or at least let's say uh, disturbance of coming to the appointment as uh, taking an hour out of their schedule on either end of the therapy. Um, and um, uh, we're able to do uh, better work faster um, and uh, with less uh, dysregulation. So that's been nothing short of amazing. Yes, there are some people that are, for privacy reasons, uh, they have a, they find a difficulty. Maybe their Wi-Fi is not that great. Um, but we worked most of that out in the first few weeks. And I do a lot of sessions in people's cars. You know, they park outside of a Starbucks or outside of their house. And, uh, you know, we just... Uh, 
do it over their phone or whatever. And it's fine. It's, you know, it's, it's, it, you know, they get used to like anything else you uh, adapt and uh, the veterans or clients um, uh, have been amazing and it's, it's uh, working quite well. So we're very proud of the fact that nobody uh, missed a session and uh, there were no tragedies. And as Jim pointed out, you know, there is increased stress when you're stuck, perhaps with a spouse that you're fighting with uh, or with kids that are screaming, that are reminding you of children that you may have had a hurt um, uh, or may have been injured in uh, combat. There are a lot of triggers domestically uh, for people that can be complicated. But, um, you know, we were able to stabilize them and keep them through that and do things like online AA. Uh, which uh, people did, and we set that up through Zoom, and we have veterans who are doing AA meetings across the country with people through, under Headstrong's uh, banner. Um, and uh, online yoga, which we have a veteran, his wife, who's a social worker, who do yoga, um, you know, again, open it to the entire, all thousand of our patients. So we also offered additional online um, offerings uh, during this time, and it's been helpful. Wow. Well, it sounds like the the pivot might actually have been a good thing for Headstrong uh, from COVID. An interesting uh, uh, externality that comes from these type of things is sometimes things we'd never consider trying end up being being good for us. Um, well, we're we're running short on time. I've uh, two just fairly simple questions. First, for people listening to this, how can they give to Headstrong? What's the easiest way when they say, "I want to support this"? How how can people help? Yeah, the, the easiest way is to just go to getheadstrong.org. Uh, and I really want to dwell on two dimensions of our website. It's, it's getheadstrong.org. Again, it's pretty simple. Um, it's also there that if you need help, it's the place to turn to to get help. And I want to stress that first over giving. Um, this is the platform by which you meet wonderful clinicians and begin your, your journey onto the, the next chapter of your life. Uh, dealing with this trauma itself. So first and foremost for your listeners, getheadstrong.org is where you go to get help. Secondly, if you're so inclined to support our mission, there's an opportunity there uh, to, to donate to Headstrong's mission. And I'm very proud of this. Um, about 85% of everything that comes in the door goes out the door to clinicians. So that ratio between program funding and the funding of administrative uh, responsibilities is really tight and, and I think reflects a well-run organization. I've only been here three months. The place has been here eight years. I've observed it from afar, but it's always had an excellent reputation from a treatment perspective and from a stewardship perspective. So um, those two things are there on the website. So if you're so inclined to join the Headstrong family uh, as, a, as a client uh, or as someone who supports our ability to support clients, get headstrong.org. So, uh, and, and thank you very much for this opportunity, Blake. Um, and I'll give the last word to my great colleague, Gerard, who uh, he's the guy who makes it work. So Gerard, over to you. Thank you, Jim. Uh, Blake, again, thanks so much for this opportunity. And again, for your listeners, I hope they understand, you know, there's a false narrative out there, which is that PTSD is a lifelong sentence and you can't get better. You can only manage it. Let me dispel that right now. PTSD is fixable. Uh, people walk out with zero symptoms. Uh, this is something that cannot just be overcome or gotten along with, but fixed and, and uh, cured. So uh, uh, I'll just leave people with that because I think they need to know that and it's not a narrative that gets pushed enough. Thanks. I have one last question for either of you. Um, for, for a bunch of our researchers, going to be people like me where I know people that would benefit from your treatment. Um, 
uh, right? And, and it feels like I probably can't go to Headstrong and put their information in. Like, what steps can I take to try and encourage them to 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 overcome the stigma and, and come in and talk with a group like Headstrong? Yeah, so one of the things I would suggest, and, and we've mentioned it a couple of times, um, your listeners could check us out on our social media platforms and really look at the Facing Stigma series uh, as a first step in understanding that other people in the same situation did the same thing. They started their journey the way it needed to be started. They presented themselves after developing the courage, whatever it takes, right? But the Facing Stigma series does a good job of it of allowing you to see how others uh, went down that path. And so go to the social media platforms, go to getheadstrong.org, follow us on Twitter, on Instagram, all the channels, LinkedIn, uh, and you'll find the way where you'll find the experiences of others spoken through their journey. And I think that's a great first step. And then once you do, you know, if otherwise send them to the website. Hey man, I think you could use some help. I talked to these people, they know what they're doing, their heads in the game. Uh, you know, hit them up, uh, contact Headstrong at getheadstrong.org. Awesome. Well, Gerard and Jim, thank you so much for coming on and taking the time. Uh, and, and beyond that, thank you so much for the work that you're doing. I know countless people that, that need this type of help. And, and it's amazing to see an organization out there that's taking such a proactive and innovative approach. So thank you. Our pleasure, Blake. Thank you. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you for listening to The Business of Vulnerability. If you or someone you know would be a wonderful guest for our next recording, please let us know at Team Pulse. It's T-E-A-M-P-U-L-S-E at PulseForGood.com. Thank you.